0: The turn of phrase Asian century has gained momentum since the 1980s. However, the idea that Asia would become the preeminent global economic and political hub long predates this. Scholars and political figures as early as the beginning of the 20th century had predicted the rise and dominance of Asia and the Pacific. Welcome to the first episode of Disrupted Asia Between Crisis, Rise and Resilience. The new podcast series started by FES Asia, where we will unpack the meaning of the Asian century, its prospects, particularly in light of the COVID 19 pandemic, and its geopolitical implications and challenges. The term Asian century is now widely used in media, academic, and political circles. For some, Asia's coming preeminence represents a return to a historical norm. Asia was the heart of the global economy in the pre-industrial revolution days. The Asian century in that sense is just the next chapter in global history, a part of an evolutionary process of the global order, where the center of political and economic gravity shifts from one dominant region to another. For many, we are already living in the Asian century. It is home to more than half of the global population. Some of the largest militaries are in the Indo-Pacific. 21 of the world's 30 largest cities are in Asia. It also accounts for nearly 40% of the global GDP, 40% of global consumption, and accounts for one-third of global trade. It has also emerged as the world's largest regional economy. Not everyone, however, is so easily convinced. As the economic growth of China, Japan, the Asian tigers and India has slowed down significantly in the past few years and is likely to decrease further in the immediate aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic, questions are being asked whether the years of high-flying growth and consequently the Asian century are already over. The socio-economic fault lines in several parts of Asia continue to remain deep, with large segments of the population still mired in poverty, with economic inequality continuing to grow even in some of the advanced Asian economies. The growing geopolitical tensions in the region have transformed Asia's security environment. Frequent border standoffs, persistent territorial disputes, and aggressive military posturing among the regional countries pose another set of challenges that threaten and could unravel not just Asia's rise, but its own cohesion. As our first guest we have with us today, Dr. Parag Khanna, a strong proponent of the idea of an Asian century, and the author of a recently published book, The Future is Asian, Commerce, Conflict and Culture in the 21st Century. He is the author of five other books, including a trilogy on the future of the world order. He is the founder and managing partner of Future Map, a data and scenario-based strategic advisory firm. Based in Singapore, he is a jet setter who has traveled to more than 150 countries.
1: Welcome to our first episode of Disrupted Asia, Between Crisis, Rise and Resilience, the new podcast series started by FES Asia. My name is Kai Dittmann, and we have with us today, Dr. Parak Karnar. Parak, you said during an interview in the beginning of the year that we are already in the Asian century. If you could start by giving us a short overview of what is meant by an Asian century and what makes you confident about its arrival.
2: The present is Asian. We live in an Asian world. It's not really a debatable fact by any means. Uh, When more than half the world's population is Asian, that means you live in an Asian world. And then the only thing that has to happen, logically speaking, for the world to be Asian is for Asia to become more Asian. It really doesn't matter what people in London or Washington think, quite frankly, right? If most of the world's population is Asian and identifies as Asian and increasingly uh, witnesses and experiences themselves belonging to an Asian system, and the operative word in, in my book is system because that is the term we use in international relations theory to, to characterize the density of relations between countries, Asia is becoming a system. Asians trade more with other Asian countries than with the rest of the world. Asians invest more with other countries than they do with the rest of the world. Asians travel more to other Asian countries than they travel to the rest of the world. In so many ways, um, Asia I- Asia defines Asian life and that is a significant transition, obviously, from the Cold War and the immediate post-Cold War period, but it's decades in the making. So first things first, the only thing that has to happen for the world to be Asian is for Asia to be Asian. Secondly, the rest of the world is also being Asianized. And that's a process that has you know, 40 or 50 years in just the immediate past of legacy, because you have massive expansion of emigration of Asians to the United States, North America, And to Europe. So you have Asians are the number one category of new American citizens every year. Now look at the number of people learning Chinese. Look at the number of countries that have China as their largest trading partner. It's 124 countries for which China is the largest trading partner. Only 50 countries have the US as their largest trading partner. So if you look at the commercial influence, the economic influence, the demographic influence, whether it is Chinese, whether it is Indian, whether it is Indonesian, Korean, Japanese, the presence of every single Asian society in the rest of the world has increased. And it is a whole that is greater than the sum of its parts. And therefore, region by region, whether it's North America, Europe, Africa, the Middle East, or Latin America, there is a deepening presence, relationship, and depth of ties with Asia, than there was five years earlier, ten years earlier, fifteen years earlier. So what I've done is to go to every region and to look at that Asianization process. So why is the world becoming Asian? Well, because Asia is, and the rest of the world is. Therefore, the world is becoming
1: more Asian. Okay, as there isn't just one Asia, is it possible then to speak of Asia as a collective entity? What are the different Asias, and how do they reconcile, interact with one another as part of this Asian century?
2: There are geographic subdivisions of Asia. There are cultural, linguistic, uh, historical subdivisions of Asia. They're all very important. And again, it's not the first time in history that they overlap and have influence over each other. The very phrase "Silk Roads," um, you know, alludes to the medieval world, to the ancient world. These various eras in which we have had thriving Silk Road relations means eras in which China and India and the Arab and Persian worlds had strong ties with each other commercially and culturally. So the fact is that that is happening again across these various uh, Asias, whether it's West Asia, South Asia, Central Asia, East Asia, Southeast Asia. And those are the different Asias that are increasingly tying themselves together, rediscovering those Silk Road connections, uh, finding having more confidence in their relations with each other, uh, building greater interdependence with each other. And that's the process that again, has been has been underway uh, primarily in terms of the current phase since the collapse of the Soviet Union, right? Most people think of this as being contingent on u s. foreign policy, right? If only the Bush administration had not dropped its eye, uh, uh, you know it's, it's lost its focus and shifted to the Middle East, if only, Barack Obama's pivot to Asia policy had been a clear success. If only the U.S. had joined the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade agreement, then Asia would not be emerging, you know, then America would still be in the lead. And if you are a structuralist like me, you think of those, you know, contingent policy or, or political kinds of observations as complete garbage, right? Because Asia is rising because Asia is rising. Asia is rising because the Soviet Union collapsed and these countries and globalization expanded and these countries became the epicenter of demographic growth, of supply chains, of trade and manufacturing. They built up their trade surpluses, their currency reserves, they modernized, they strengthened their militaries, they've expanded internationally. That's not something that you reverse just because you may or may not like the president of the United States. There's nothing more arrogant and, quite frankly, stupid than saying that, you know, Asia would not have risen if, right? Because, of course, Asia would have risen, right? You're not going to contain the growth of the Chinese and Indian populations. You're not stopping them from becoming the locus of manufacturing. It's American outsourcing and Western outsourcing to Asia, starting in the 1960s and 70s, that helped Asia become Asia. So the notion that somehow... um, The U.S. is the center of this process, or Europe is is the center of this process, is utterly preposterous. So if we want to understand how Asia became Asia, we can look at uh, at the globalization dynamics that began during the Cold War that really began with the rise of Japan. Japan is the first major Asian economic heavyweight, uh, not China then came the tiger economies, then only came China. And now you have the next, you know, I focus a lot of the book on the fourth wave economies, uh, uh, South and Southeast Asia, from India through Indonesia and the Philippines. And they're also playing a greater role in this Asian system and, uh, and globally. So, uh, you know, as far as, as far as I'm concerned, Asia's rise is structural, not cyclical. Asia's rise is uh, you know, really accelerated by the collapse of the Soviet Union, which is obviously something that the West uh, accelerated and helped to, to engineer and bring about. So there are many people alive today in Asia, including my own parents, who remember both colonialism and the Cold War. Now, what kind of a leader in Asia would be dumb enough to fall into a trap again of being a pawn, of being a victim, of being a stooge? of playing second fiddle, of being manipulated. There are a couple of countries, sadly, that have fallen into that trap for financial reasons. But that's not a trap that India is going to fall into. It's not a trap that Kazakhstan is going to fall into. It's not a trap that Indonesia is going to fall into. And so by and large, Asia is characterized by countries that have a memory, an institutional memory of colonialism, the Cold War, and therefore they will never let themselves succumb again. And that's part of why uh, the analogies to the past, such as when people say new Cold War or when people speak about Asia as being divided between China and America, literally understand nothing about Asian history. You cannot understand Asian history and possibly make a statement like that.
1: At the same time, this newfound confidence of the individual Asian countries has also led to tensions uh, along the borders. So my question is how much... Actually, this individual self-confidence and the autonomy of the different countries leads actually to, to problems within the rise of Asia.
2: So yes, there are frictions within Asia. And we should be absolutely clear that the rise of Asia does not in any way, shape, or form mean a peaceful Asia. And I you know, make that point very, very clearly up front. Uh, even before I wrote this book, I spent a lot of my time looking at Asia's geopolitical dynamics. And all of the major disputes and, and World War III scenarios in the world are in Asia between Asian countries. So there's no doubt that the rise of Asia can also be a violent period, no question about it. So the fact is that there is an evolutionary process. Asia is also going through it. And friction is itself the sign that there is a system. In the colonial world, Britain was, uh, India was more tied to Britain. Uh, than it was to, um, to its neighbors, like China. Uh, in the Cold War world, and even today, to some degree, Japan uh, sees itself more tied to the United States than to China. Uh, but over time, what we're seeing is that Asians are getting more and more tied to each other. They are expanding in their neighborhoods. And those frictions that they have with each other, such as the China-India border dispute, are examples of Asia becoming a system. Not a loose, not a, an area where countries share geography but no interaction, but rather an, a, a, a system in which they share geography and interactions. And not all of those interactions are going to be peaceful. So the, the fact that there are conflicts in Asia is proof that they are a system, not uh, evidence against it. So the fact is that each of these conflicts will have a settlement at some point. It could be violent. It could be peaceful, but you're not going to have 19 wars in Asia at the same time, right? You will have different conflicts playing out at different timescales between different players and competitors. And they're not really going to tie together in some big domino effect.
1: At the same time, very few of these disputes have been resolved yet. So if it were easy, it would have already been happening, right? Um, So the question is, why are you so confident that there will come a a solution and not a stalemate? Because when you look at most of the conflicts, none of them actually have found either a peaceful nor a peaceless resolution.
2: Right. Well, China has, in some cases, going back to the 1990s, settled uh, border disputes uh, with countries in Central Asia, but explicitly not done so with India because it wanted to have greater uh, geographical advantage. It wanted to complete the Western Highway, for example. And the Western Highway is precisely the route that has been used uh, to mobilize Chinese forces to be able to be more effective um, in the disputes in Arunachal Pradesh, Uh, and in uh, Aksai Chin. And so what's happening, uh, you know, right now to some degree is a manifestation of China using this infrastructure to probe. But what it did not count on is India modernizing so quickly, building its own infrastructure, mobilizing its forces to resist uh, Chinese encroachment. So, so, you know, in that sense, China miscalculated a couple of decades ago. It probably should have simply settled these disputes, um, but it didn't. Now, what is happening is that, in pretty much you know most of the geographies where China has been pressing and gaining advantage, the pushback is growing. And the pushback is obviously not just indigenous, right? The Philippines cannot stand up to China. But that's why the United States is still so important because the u s. Navy, now the Japanese Navy, the Australian Navy, the Indian Navy, Uh, all are cooperating in this so-called quad framework uh, to strengthen each other's capacity to stand up to China. And I think that's very important. That's not quite the same as balance of power. Um, You know, it feels like balancing dynamics, but it's more sort of situational because, again, you know, these countries don't like to speak of alliances. It's how to strengthen the resources of the local players in order to resist China because the United States itself does not want to be a tripwire in the conflict. It's not putting its forces, um, you know, uh, it, it's it's expanding its capacity in the region, but mostly in, um, in uh, with Japan, South Korea, and Australia. So fairly far offshore, so to speak. Um, it's selling more weapons to Taiwan, but it doesn't want to be the tripwire. This is not Berlin 1960, 61, right? So You know, it's about strengthening the capacity of local actors so they can find a new equilibrium with China so that so that Asians can figure out what is going to be uh, hopefully a peaceful settlement of these disputes uh, rather than one in which uh, some of these uh, countries, you know, get crushed by China because they would get crushed by China. Right. So the question is, how do you
1: avoid that? And within this complex system, we now have a devastating global pandemic. What has been the impact of COVID-19 on Asian economies? What are the long-term effects on Asia's economic growth, especially given the slow growth that has been recorded in the past few years? Has COVID-19 maybe sharpened the already existing fault lines in Asia?
2: Well, low economic growth is a relative term because, of course, Asia is really the only region that has recorded decent economic growth at all in the last 10 years. Um, now, some countries in Asia have uh, suffered a tremendous setback to their growth. We see a 5 five to 10% drop um, in GDP uh, in countries like Singapore, in Malaysia, uh, Thailand. Um, others are going to record growth still this year, like China itself, Vietnam, uh, and so on. It's not really a race to growth, of course. It's When you have a global shock like this that affects both supply and demand, it's really about resilience. Now, of course, this is also the only region of the world that uh, has any real uh, long-term prospect of resilience not based purely on government stimulus, which is what is happening in Europe uh, or the United States, because here you still have poverty that can be alleviated, you still have people that can be included in financial systems, you still have urbanization, you have youth, um, and of course you have a restoration of mobility, because borders in Asia will open faster than borders in other countries, other regions, because they've managed COVID-19 better. So I think that Asia will, uh, you know, sort of re-resurrect, and it will probably do so in a way that benefits Asia, which is to say that they will get more integrated with each other. After all, they can't depend on exports frictionlessly flowing across the Pacific or to Europe. They can't depend on capital flowing in in huge volumes because capital is flowing out. In the sort of flight to safety so they have to unlock more resources to invest in each other trade with each other Um, they have to do more privatization more more uh, capital account liberalization so in other words there's a lot of things that asians can do that they either had been doing or have not done yet that they can do to restore their growth trajectory so i quite frankly don't really worry about about uh, asia even some of the poorest countries have either had relatively low COVID infection rates um, uh, or they have, uh, you know, again, had populations that, you know, more or less obeyed, uh, you know, the the, uh, diktats or the advice of health experts and uh, managed to control the virus. So I am generally quite optimistic about Asia returning to the path that it was on.
1: So is the generally held perception that the West mismanaged its response to the pandemic, correct? Uh, And... Does that maybe allow Asian countries to assume a larger global role?
2: Well, first of all, I I do not speak of the West as a unified entity. I don't believe in that concept. I I certainly, as a student of history and philosophy, have a deep appreciation for what the West has meant. But I do not have uh, much of a strong belief that the West is a coherent geopolitical uh, entity today. And I certainly don't believe... That, uh, that any self-respecting European like yourself would look at America and view it as a sort of, you know, moral co-equal when it comes to your ability to deliver welfare to citizens, right? If, if I were a European, at least as someone who lived in Germany growing up, uh, I, I would, on your behalf, you know, take way too much pride in the accomplishments of the European welfare state to want to be compared to the United States. And so the West is a patchwork. The West is diverse in the same way that asia is incredibly diverse i don't speak about asia as a un- unified or coherent entity ever um i speak about things that asians tend to want to aspire to but i don't treat them as having a single ideology or philosophy and i think far too many citizens of the west are quite frankly too ignorant about what the west even used to mean to accord them you know this sort of privilege uh, that they know what the west is so has the west botched covid i mean uh, i think that some european countries have obviously done quite all right um you know germany being one of them despite the 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 the, the difficulty of having so many borders with neighbors and having a large population um and so forth and uh, i think the real lesson is around state capacity you know the big winners ideologically globally from COVID-19 are Asia's democracies, right? In the last three or four months, you have finally witnessed, um, you know, uh, a, a really a decent amount of coverage of how South Korea, Taiwan, Japan, uh, Singapore, and other countries in Asia that are, that are democratic, that are either full democracies like Japan and South Korea, or that, have, uh, that are democracies with, with very strong state capacity uh, like Singapore and others, um, have managed COVID extremely well right? Much better than other countries. And the fact is that when Western audiences typically look at Asia and all they see is authoritarian China, they've been missing the fact that there's a couple of billion people in Asia who live in democracies. Now I'll put India to some degree to the side because India has, uh, you know, perhaps not surprisingly not done a very good job with COVID. It's a very poor country with very low state capacity. So the lesson here. Is that it's not a trade off between a capacity and democracy. It's that the, the, the best regimes in the world have been those that are democracies with strong state capacity. And the two, you know, large countries that fit that 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 tick the box, that tick both boxes, are Germany and Japan. Right. The two countries with large populations that are full democracies that have very effective governments. Now, I mean, again, I'm, I'm bracketing out tiny countries. I'm not talking about Denmark and I'm not talking about New Zealand. I'm talking about very populous countries. And therefore, Japan and Germany uh, you know, really stand out as uh, the role models from which I hope that the rest of the world will
1: learn especially because a lot of countries in Asia had the societal and state capacity to follow their medical experts, that they can reopen earlier than other countries. So do you think that it might actually even give give a comparative boost um, when it comes to competition between the regions? Um, You know, in general, that has been my argument, of course, that
2: because state capacity has been improving, and this is something that I document very clearly in the book by looking at countries' rankings in the worldwide governance indicators of the World Bank, where you see a very strong improvement in state capacity across Asian countries, whether they are democratic or authoritarian. So state capacity has been improving, and therefore it's not a surprise that they uh, handled COVID well. Also, of course, they had the experience of SARS in their institutional memory from 2003. So does it bolster Asians' credibility that they can do a good job of governing themselves without any foreign kind of tutelage or intervention? The answer is yes, but that was also true before COVID. Because if you live here in Asia, you know very well that the Philippines and Thailand and China and Korea and Japan and Singapore and you know basically no country in Asia actually cares what a Western democracy consultant or Western academic tells them they think they should do. Um, Again, I'm an American who's been living in Asia for eight years. And to me, this is blindingly obvious. It's only if you actually live in Europe or America and never travel to Asia, would you actually think that Asians care what you think. And, um, you know, I hate to say that, but it's also something that I write very clearly in my book. So there's no harm in, in restating it because I'm not just using it as a rhetorical device. It is a direct observation from my many, many years of traveling on Asia. Asians have already you know, studied, copied, borrowed, adapted some of the best
1: practices. When, if you would need to make a prediction for um, the Asian system in five to 10 years, uh, what can we expect?
2: Well, the Asian system, again, is is vast. It's the most economically and geographically um, uh, and and demographically expansive uh, system that we have in the world today in terms of regions. So many things will happen in this system as it evolves. For example, things that happen in Saudi Arabia are part of the Asian system. Most of Saudi Arabia's oil and gas, the same with Kuwait and others, flow east. Do I expect, for example, that Turkey and Iran and Saudi Arabia will all continue to tilt more towards China, India and other Asian countries? Yes, absolutely. So that will be one thing that happens in this Asian system. Will there be a uh, potentially a conflict, but some kind of a settlement, peaceful or violent, of disputes like South China Sea Islands? Or will there be a resolution to the status of North Korea? Yes, I also think these things will happen within the next uh, 10 years. Um, will China in some ways accept the fact that it cannot be a unilateral hegemon across Asia and instead accept uh, the uh, the growing role of other powerful Asian states uh, like India or Japan, Indonesia, Korea, even Russia as countries that in the case of Russia right now are very pliant towards China, but are also very suspicious of China? So will China realize that it has to move from a very hierarchical vision of its role in the region towards one that is more consistent with Asian history, which is more of an equilibrium model. Um, Yes, I believe that that is possible, but not necessarily likely. It really depends on who's in power um, in China. So there are some some things that I can feel relatively certain about, and there are other things that are still big question marks.
1: Thank you, Parak. It was a pleasure talking to you. And Thank you for taking the time and for your insights on the Asian century, the impacts of the COVID pandemic and the road ahead.
0: This was Parag Kanar, author of The Future is Asian. Thanks for joining us for our first episode of Disrupted Asia Between Crisis, Rise and Resilience. This podcast was brought to you by Friedrich Ebert Stiftung in Asia, interviewed by Kai Dittmann, Research by Ariman Bhatnagar directed by Mirku Gunter, and produced by Andovar. Make sure to subscribe, tell your friends about it, and don't forget to visit our website, fes-asia.org, for regular updates on freedom, justice, and solidarity in Asia.